Hello, Lion Cook Nation. This is Ray DeLucci with the Lion Cook Thoughts Podcast. In this episode, I get to interview chocolatier Chris Harvey. Uh, he is a chocolatier in Beverly Hills at Ann Sons. And he is also just someone who I think is a teacher for a lot of uh, aspiring pastry chefs, pastry cooks. People look up to him on Instagram. I mean, he has 103,000 followers on Instagram. And he has been able to build this brand, uh, build this reputation as a, a master of his craft. You know, he's someone who really is putting in the work and he's an example of what happens when you work uh so hard to build something so great i mean it it was just an honor to have him on the show and i know a lot of people who listen to this podcast are more uh pastry focused and i don't have a lot of people uh from that side of the industry on and i think having chris on was good for me because i got to learn a little bit more about that side of it in terms of the nuances of chasing your dreams when it comes to being a pastry chef and what it takes whether it's traveling to france like he talks about in the episode or you know thinking of new ways to approach things such as caramel which we also talk about in the episode or just the fact of you know just (laughs) putting in the work and staying true to yourself and also being interested and curious at all stages of your career so I think he is someone who is not only a great chef, but a great teacher. You go on his Instagram and all of his captions, all of his Instagram stories have so much value to cooks. I mean, his Instagram probably has a textbook's worth of knowledge uh, on just uh, pastry and chocolates and, you know, whatever else you might be interested in if you're in that side of the industry. And I just think it's really cool to have to had to have had this conversation with him. you know, he's someone who is very busy, and for him to take the time that he did to come on the show, it truly means a lot. So first, I want to say thank you to Chris for coming on the show. And I just want to say thank you to everyone who's going to be listening uh, this week and who has been listening. We're on episode 51. It's been great so far. I'm so, so grateful that I get to do this every week. So thank you all so much. And yeah, I'm just very excited about this conversation. Uh, you know, we had a great time talking. You know, this is like his first podcast. And I told him he should have his own podcast. And uh, I mean, at the end, we kind of talk about that a little bit. But I just really see Chris uh, as someone who is going to be very, I mean, he already is huge in our industry, but someone who's going to teach so many more lessons and have such a larger impact than he already has in this industry. So thank you so much for uh, letting me interview for your first podcast. And I'm excited to have you all listen to this. So like I said, thank you so much for listening. And here we go. Hey, Chris, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You just want to go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience. Uh, you know, that'd be helpful for them to kind of get a sense of who you are and yeah, what you do. Okay. All right, well, my name is Chris Harvey. Uh, I'm a uh, pastry chef in Los Angeles, California. I just do chocolate at this point in my career. I am uh, uh, the chocolatier for a company in Beverly Hills called And Sons, and it's a second-generation chocolate shop. Uh, it was uh, started in 1983 um, by a, um, a woman who uh, imported a, a brand from Switzerland, um, and then she retired after uh, having it for about 30 years, passed it on to her two sons. Uh, they approached me about four years ago uh, about doing uh, our own brand, about closing down that brand, renovating the store, and launching it as our own brand. And um you know, this is so we built a kitchen in downtown Los Angeles, and it supports the store in Beverly Hills, California. Okay, and you you mentioned you're just doing chocolate now. Why uh, why chocolate is why is that the thing that you kind of started to focus on uh, later in your career right now? 
Well, I, I started um, my ch chocolate training early in my career because, you know, it's it's the number one flavor option when it comes to dessert is chocolate. Everybody mm -hmm. loves it. It crosses all boundaries of, uh, you know, religious beliefs or political beliefs or ethnic uh, oh. background. Uh, I mean, it is love worldwide. And you can't say that about some ethnic foods, uh, but it is love worldwide. Um, but when I, when I got my, I guess the real impact that was, was, put into me was I met Robert Links, who was the, the uh, founder and um, chief chocolatier of uh, La Maison du Chocolat in Paris. And I met him when I was like 25 years old. And um, he, it was in New York City. And I flew out to New York for the Salon du Chocolat. And um, he uh, was in front of an audience, but he handed me a ganache that he made. And it was a, ganja, a ganache made with manjari uh, and lemon zest. And you know, it was liquid form. It wasn't in bonbon form, but he handed it to me on a paper plate with like no spoons or anything like that. And um, I folded it up like a taco and and uh, just pushed it into my <laughs> mouth and licked the plate. And I remember thinking to myself, my God, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. But there's not a lot of jobs for chocolatiers, especially in this country. And um, but I kept working on it. I kept working on it. I kept working on it. And I, and I tell people this day. I mean, just because you don't have a chocolate machine doesn't mean that you can't train for the day that you may have one. Um, and in this case, you know, there was a 20 year gap between meeting him and having my first chocolate machine. I didn't get my first chocolate machine until like 2014. So it was almost 20 years uh, to, uh, to, to the date where, when I met him. Um, so, you know, I, I knew how to work with chocolate and I knew the things that I wanted to make. And it's just something you fall in love with, you know. And uh, when he died, I did get the logo of his company tattooed on my forearm. Okay. And, uh, and, uh, they, the company is now owned by a larger company, but they saw that over in France. They saw it on Instagram and they said, Hey, they messaged me one day, like three years ago. And they said, we're coming out with this new book at the beginning of the year. And we're calling it, uh, chocolate. So chic would, could we possibly put this photo in the book? It's about the cultural impact of La Maison du Chocolat. And I said, yeah, Absolutely. And before it was released in America, it came out in France. And one of my fans was over in Paris, and she was at the Louvre. And she saw it um, on the Louvre bookstore shelf. And she opened it up, and she said to the attendant, she says, hey, I know this guy. I used to go to his restaurant all the time. It was at the time The Bazaar by Jose Andreas. And um, I know him very well. And... Uh, and she sent me a photo overnight. She texted to me of uh, my arm at the Louvre. So that's a pretty good journey to get in, involved in, in chocolate. Um, and I don't, you know, I, I mean, I spent my whole career doing pastry, um, but my desire was always to do chocolate. I jokingly tell people that uh, I got into pastry to be around chocolate, <laughs> a lot like guys take yoga classes to be around girls in yoga <laughs> pants. And uh, it, to me, it, it was an opportunity to meet chocolate, basically. Okay. You know? And, um, I mean, that's, that's cool to hear. Uh, I was doing a little bit of research and, uh, you went to a, a chocolate Academy to start out. Um, what was that? Like? Yeah. you many years ago. Um, yeah, many years ago, there was a guy named Pascal Janvier, just like, you know, in French, January Janvier, that, um, he was the, uh, technical advisor chef for Cocoa Berry before it was owned by Barry Calibo before it was Barry Calibo. And it was in Pensacola, New Jersey, just outside of Philadelphia. And uh, I met him uh, when I was about 23 years old. And I took a couple different courses from him. 
Yeah, he was quite impactful on my life, you know. And then when I was in my late 20s, I really, you know, felt like I needed to do more. So I went off to France and I went to school in France. I uh, went to Belleway Conceal in Paris. And um, it was just an amazing experience. And it, it made me realize that I had forgotten how hard I had to work in order to be successful, where I just thought, you know, I'll just wing it here or wing it there. I, it was a it was a big wake up call for me. It, it I got cavalier with my career and my and myself, and um, I realized that I needed to work even harder. So when I came back, um, I really put my nose to the grindstone. I, I changed my lifestyle and uh, changed my job, and um, I just kind of aimed for for more, and that really set me. Fire. Was it like a certain moment that it kind of all snapped into place or was it just the course of being in France and working over there? You know, I can't pinpoint a certain moment. I just, I just had gotten away from the formation that I didn't know that I still needed. And it made me realize that most people don't realize how much formation they actually need. They, they need formation. Just like if your dog didn't get, you know, his mind and body exercise, he would get, you know, he would start just destructing your home or whatever. But I think humans are, are a, a lot alike, you know, they, they need that formation, that training, that direction, they may not need it, they may not know it. But um, there are certainly a lot of people out there that do a lot of following for good or for bad, um, that are, are getting that and don't even realize it. So uh, for me, I just needed to get back there and just realize, man, it takes a lot of work to be good at this. Just to be good. Just to be good. Not be great. Just to be good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So it, it's a hard profession being a cook. Um, and uh, But just to be decent at it, it takes a lot of work. So if you want to reach greatness to whatever that is for your abilities, it takes a lot more. And I, and I just remember that's... I remember having that in my early 20s and getting kind of cavalier about it in my mid-20s, getting all that back in my late 20s. And then really, um, you know, I think it, a lot of it has to do with maturing as a person, as a person too. And, um, you know, I just realized I needed to be a little bit more patient. Uh, I needed to attempt to do things that I was afraid to do because I was afraid of what the result may be. And uh, that was kind of stopping me from growing. So I had to realize that nobody was looking when I was working in the laboratory. So I shouldn't worry about making mistakes. It wasn't like there was TV cameras on me. I wasn't posting it on Instagram. You know, Instagram wasn't around. Um, so I, it was okay to make some failures if it got me to the point where it was going to lead me to success. And that's where I think people are really afraid to, to do. They're, they're really afraid to do that. They're really afraid to attempt to do new things. Because they're afraid, they, they think they can't do it. They say, I don't know, I can't do it. But yeah, of course, you can't do anything until you try. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's, that's, the, that's everything. And this is a business that, you know, you can get better at. I mean, when I hire people, there's nobody I've ever hired off the street that has come in here, no matter where I've worked, and blown me away. There's good and there's horrible. And there's somewhere in between. But nobody comes in and gets it automatically. Okay. That's all there is to yeah. it. You know, it takes it takes time. It takes practice. It takes digesting information. But it takes that person actually doing it, too. 
they have to do it. Okay. And I guess, uh, I mean, you brought up patience and, you know, as someone who's like younger in the industry just starting their career a couple of years ago. Uh, and, you know, I have goals and I have things I want to accomplish. And how, like, I guess, how were you, did you realize you needed to be patient or was that, did you not learn that until later in your 20s? Or? No. Yeah. No, I mean, everybody talks about the sense of entitlement that this generation of young people has today. They don't really have the market cornered on that. Uh, I think everybody has wanted everything better, faster, sooner uh, than it was coming to them. Um, I just realized that it took me until my mid-30s that it just takes a long time to get good at this. It just does. And um, it, it just it, it takes good self-esteem. It takes um, the desire to get better. It takes ambition. Um, and, you know, people get, you know, activity confused with achievement. I mean, you could run around all day. I mean, look, people walk into the gym. I, I go to a gym every day. I see people walk in and all they do is talk to people and, the, and their body never changes. I go in, I, I put my earbuds in, I'm there for an hour, I bang the workout, I bang it out and I feel good about myself. Okay, I feel good about what I've accomplished. Work is like that too. There's people go in and do nothing all day. And, and, and there's jobs like that for those people out there. They can go work in cubicles. Mm -hmm. And if they don't do anything, nobody cares. Um, but in this business, it's, it's about having your emotions right. It's about having your thoughts correct. It's about, it's about being undistracted. I mean, it's all those things, you know. It's, and, and sometimes, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes in behind the scenes. Um, that nobody ever sees the amount of work we put into. They just see the pretty stuff. They don't see the, the details. And I'll give you an example. We have somebody here who's a new manager in the store, and she's here for a couple of days. And, you know, she's observing, and it's quite boring to observe what we do day to day like in a fishbowl, okay? Um, because they only see the exciting stuff, the pretty stuff that goes up to the store. And it's like watching paint dry. If you're involved in it and seeing the process, it's a whole different experience. Uh, but uh, really... Uh, uh, you have to be involved in it every day to really kind of get the full thrill of it. I okay. Think. Yeah. I mean, thank you for sharing that. Uh, it's one thing, you know, a lot of my generation, though, you said we face that, uh, we're known for not being patient or, you know, wanting things sooner. Um, but you know, a lot of my friends and I, it's just, we, like, we know that there's like a lot of hard work ahead and there's a lot of hard work now. Um, I think what I've, what I've heard and I, like, what I'm noticing is like the hard work doesn't stop. Like, even after you like we started to become successful, like have you found that like you're you still work extremely hard? I'm I'm assuming to be able to do all that you do harder, 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 because the expectations are greater. I mean, once you're accomplished something, they expect more and more out of you, whether it's the public or your employer. I mean, that that never ends. I mean, it would be easy. There's a lot of people out there that are mediocre at the job, and nobody ever asks them to do anything, and they may they might make good money. You know, but, you know, you go, uh, you know, the New York Yankees are used to winning uh, world championships. Um, and when they don't, people are pissed off at them. They, they, they feel entitled. They say, hey, you know, you guys have this huge payroll and you guys can't win past the first round of the playoffs. This is ridiculous, you know, because they're used to winning. You know, you go to another city that isn't used to winning, you know, like Chicago. Uh, they just, nah, they're lovable losers. They just laugh it off. Now they've won a World Series in recent memory, but the point is, is if you're not used to giving them greatness, they just go, man, who cares? Yeah. 
they're they're just there as a as a bystander. They're not there to participate in the glory of winning something. So winning something, you know, and getting great at something, uh, I mean, people just expect more and more out of you. You know, sometimes you can just become, you can level out and become a great brand and never have any innovation like Rolex or Louis Vuitton. Or you can continue to push the envelope like Porsche and Lamborghini and Ferrari and really look into the future. Not look to your past, but look into the future. Um, there are chefs that do that in this business. I think there's a difference between innovation and creativity. Very few people are innovative. Uh, we have to adapt to the food and, and, you know, there's only so many ways we can push it, you know? Mm. Uh, but, you know, I th- we've seen some great innovation over the last 20 years with the low heat cookery and the use of, um, food additives. I'm kind of glad that trend is over with. Um, but, um, you know, when it comes down to it, the, the things that will always be here is that we do basic techniques step by step by step. And, and give you another example, like when I teach master classes, people message me and they say, is this for beginners or is this for experience? So I tell people, I say, you start at the beginning with chocolate and pastry. If we skip a step making our chocolates, even somebody with a lot of experience, I have to do it the exact same way as somebody who has five months experience. Hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't, the chocolate doesn't look at me and say, oh, you're, you're, you're my master. I will, I will, uh, bow down to you. It, no, no, no. We have to work with it. Okay. So, uh, so whether you have five months experience or 30 years experience, like I do, you have to work within the parameters that it tells you to work with. And knowing what we know about chocolate, we should be able to dominate it. There should be no question about our dominance over chocolate. And in fact, the difference between the really good ones and the poor ones, the makers of such, is uh, the gap of, of knowledge, not as much Ill- ability, but the gap of knowledge and information and then applying it. That's, that's one, two, and three. Gaining the knowledge, um, shortening that gap between not having knowledge and having knowledge and then applying it. And then you can, you can you know, tie everything together in, in, in your career. And that goes with anything in cookery. Because, you know, there's just so far you can cook something. Water boils at this temperature. When you add sugar, it goes to this. There's a point where it goes too high, it's unusable. So we, don't, we know all these things. We, sh- we should seek out this information and, and really that, that makes us better because we know everything about it now. There's not too many things we don't know about food in, in food um, that's a, still a mystery to us. They don't find, I mean, in, in 30 years in pastry, here are the, some of the new things that we discovered. Cocoa nibs and blonde chocolate. That's about it. Okay. okay. That's about huh. it. You know, at, chocolate's got a little bit more sophisticated in the nuances and things like that because people's taste buds are changing. But getting us cocoa nibs and, uh, and blonde chocolate are, are the two newest innovations in 30 years that I've seen. Okay. Uh, I, mean, I mean, you talk about, inno- you talk about innovation. And uh, uh, before I start asking you questions about pastry, know that I do not have a very large pastry background. Um, so, I mean, this is all very interesting to me. I'm very excited to le- kind of learn more. But when I was researching for the podcast, just like some questions, I noticed on your Instagram uh, that I, I think with Carmel a lot, I saw with your post about Carmel, uh, you, you said something along the lines that you don't need to add water because it's going to caramelize eventually anyway. And I remember seeing a lot, like a couple of people, Correct. like it almost seemed like you were like, we're going against something they believed in or like, they're just like, why are you doing it this way? 
uh, why do you think people are so stuck in one way of like, is that, is that something that you've found is that people are really stuck in making chocolate a certain way? Or? Yeah, I can tell you why. Cause, cause, cause the people that are teaching at culinary schools are not, um, people that are, um, still in the industry. So there's a supply side and a demand side. So I'm on the demand side of cooks, right? So I need cooks supply side of the culinary schools. And a lot of people that are doing the education are just teaching from man, manuals and, and the repertoire of cuisine, which was written by Escoffier more than like a hundred years ago. Okay. So when they found something that went wrong a hundred years ago, they became like a you know, primitive man. And it, it's just not like that. I mean, the way they teach meringue, is ridiculous. They say, oh, you you can't put water into the meringue or, oh, you have to have the sugar gradually. Well, that's absolute bullshit. That is not true at all. Um, you know, maybe something else went wrong when Escoffier was making his meringues and he wrote it down as such. But, you know, we can look at any, any of the sciences, um, starting with psychiatry, and realize that how they treated people 40 years ago is not how they treat people now. So why can't we grow in science with food as well? We should. Okay, so um, they do teach these things, uh, you know, where people go, oh, my sugar got sandy because the water evaporated. And, and they say, oh, your sugar was dirty. That's why it happened. Oh, maybe you were stirring it. That's, that's not a logical answer. Okay, the sugar is going to caramelize eventually anyway. You can put water on it. The sugar is going to caramelize eventually, and there'll be no water in it at that point. Okay, once it reaches 193 degrees centigrade, I promise you, there's no water in that sugar anymore. You may have started with water. But what's the point? Water puts fire out. Okay. So do you start with dry kindling or do you start with a wet kindling? Well, if you want to get it to burn, you start with dry kindling. So we do, we do, when we make our caramels, we start with a dry pan. We get it hot. We start adding the sugar gradually. And then we deglaze um, with the dairy and it might have, you know, another ingredient in it like inverted sugar or not inverted sugar, but uh, glucose syrup. And then we cook it from there. So, um, it's a much faster, it's a much more rational method of doing it. It's a much more logical method of doing it. And I just told a, a pastry cook in Chicago when she asked my advice about praline, I said, you cook the sugar separately, then you do the nuts. You roast the nuts in the oven, and then instead of tossing them with the sugar and spending three hours caramelizing the sugar and using all that energy of your shoulder and your arm, you can take the sugar, the water, the glucose, and cook it to a temperature pour it out into a silpat and grind them up separately before grinding them all together. That makes much more sense. It's better for your equipment. It's better for your time management. And overall, you can manage the final um, texture and flavor and taste of the, of the um, uh, praline because you're measuring the temperature of the sugar, which was previously impossible if you were cooking it with the hazelnuts. It just makes sense okay. to me. So we've, we've taken the two, we've divided them, we made it into two different processes, processes, and it's become a better process. Okay. Well, and so what, uh, so when you find like these new uh, processes or you find out like how you're doing things differently, uh, how do you like, how does your team react to that? Like maybe you find something out that. Well, I mean, I, you know, I give straight information, you know, if they ask me, I'll, I'll tell them, but I think when you have young cooks, you just give them straight information the way you want them to do it. You, you will find an extraordinarily intelligent cook from time to time who, who says, you know, chef, I've seen it a different way. Can you explain to me what the difference is? But, but, but to explain to them, to over, to, to over inform sometimes just confuses. So 
when I'm teaching somebody something, I don't need to show them all the variables that could happen. I just give them a straight answer. They don't have time and I don't have time. But if somebody asks me, why do we do it that way? I will go into to, to, to reasons for that. But I really think the more information you give to somebody sometimes confuses them. You know, if you've ever been in a building where the person gives you a roundabout um, way of giving you directions to the bathroom, you'll have a hard time finding the bathroom. It's just much easier sometimes if they just walk you to the bathroom, you know, or walk you to the exit. So, you know, it, it's that philosophy of the, the quickest way to a destination is from A to B in a straight line. Um, I just give the straight information. And then um, just as somebody gave me straight information and I discovered later on in life different ways of doing it. Plus, I want them to do it the way I want them to do it. Okay. When they get off and they become their own chef, they can do it any way they want to. Okay. Uh, sticking with uh, caramel. Uh, so, I mean, the reason I got went into like this uh, like whole thing of seeing people ask you about caramel is you posted about this raspberry salted butter caramel uh, that you made, and you say, said that it like took you two years to get it just right. Uh, what what about that product took so long to kind of become what you wanted it to be? Well, I had I had aspirations to be. Uh, to be um, Jacques Genin in Paris. You know, he always is, you know, noted for his um, beautiful salsa butter caramels. And, you know, I just fell in love with that. So I said, okay, I'm going to copy whatever the hell he's doing. And um, I wanted to be just like his, you know. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with saying I want to be just like whomever, you know. And it doesn't mean you have to take their recipes and steal them, but you, you just have to you know, find the inspiration, who you aspire to be, and then just kind of copy their pattern for success. And um, I was looking for a certain texture, not too chewy, not too sticky on the teeth. And um, I knew that a degree in sugar is like a mile in distance. Okay. It doesn't go like super mm -hmm. fast. It takes time. And, you know, you have to go through that process. You have to compare the difference between 124 centigrade and 123 centigrade and 122. So, you know, we had to do it many, many times. We had to see, okay, is it sticking to the paper? Is it sticking to our teeth? Where's the flavor? Is it is the flavor brighter at 122 or is it brighter at 125? Is it too stiff? So we sit there and you put, we put them through a lot of tests. We sat there and we tasted them, the ones that I was making compared to Jacques Jennings, compared to Henri LaRue. You know, um, I love Henri LaRue. I think my caramels are better. I, I, I think my caramels are better than Jacques Jenin. And I put people through a blind taste test. And, you know, I don't think they were blowing smoke up my, my, my tuchus, but they, they said that mine were better. But I put a lot of work into it. You know, I mean, I don't know what Jacques does, what his recipe is, but I, I know what mine were. And, you know, you can learn a lot by standing over a pot of sugar and watching it cook. Okay. You know, just as you can... Learn a lot by making croissant dough. You're going to be at that bench making croissants for eight hours. It, pay attention to what you're doing. That's the beautiful part about cooking. We're taking raw materials and watching them change. Okay. And so like an item like that, that takes, uh, you know, that length of time. Is there ever an item where you have like not been able to get it right? Or maybe you'd realize that it won't be able to go the way you want it to? Or does it usually end up going the way you need it? Well, it's, it's never on the first try. And, it, and if you think you got something right on the first try, 
then, you know, it's like that old saying, if you're the smartest one in the room, you're the, you're in the wrong room. Mm -hmm. Um, if you got it right the first time, you probably need to keep trying. You know, I, 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 there's nothing, you know, my favorite film director is William Friedkin. He directed the exorcist and the French connection. He's still alive. He's, he's 85 years old. He's brilliant. And, um, I heard an interview with him a few years ago and I met him actually a few years ago. I saw one of his movies with him. I he, he won uh, best director for the French connection in 1972 or 73. And uh, he directed the actor to best actor and he got best screenplay and best editing and blah, 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 blah. But um, he's a brilliant guy. And, and he talked about this artist who uh, uh, went into the Louvre, saw his painting and realized it needed a little bit more work, even though it was at the Louvre, and he got a stool and he, he started touching it up and he got tackled by security. And he said to, he says, look, I'm the act. I'm, I, I am the artist of this painting. And, uh, um, and I, and they said, but sir, you've already reached the pinnacle. You're in the Louvre. And he said, but it could be better. And, and William said in this interview, he said, if I had enough time on this planet and I had enough money, I would redo everything I ever made because I have different thoughts about it now. Hmm. And I, I, I feel everything I did could be better, but we're under deadline and you know, the movie may not be ready, but it has to get into theaters and it just has to get done. Hmm. And, you know, knowing that I don't think there's anything that I, I make except for maybe the cantilated Bordeaux, but that took 15 years of my life to get right, to get it just where I wanted. It took 15 years of my life before I ever sold one to the public. We tasted them. I gave them to girlfriends and friends and blah, blah, blah. But I, I never thought it was like what I wanted it to be for almost 15 years. So, you know, even to this day, to this, you know, I can't beat myself up over it because we have to sell the products. But yes, I would love my stuff to be better. I think it's good. People love it. Could it be better? Absolutely. I don't, and even though people love it, I still think it could be better. And I, and I, I have taken stuff that were number one sellers and changed them because I thought it was for the better good. I, I thought it was really for, for the better of, of our company and better of our, our program. To, if I had an idea in my mind to say, would this be better, even though it already makes us all this much money, it didn't matter to me. Hmm. I was going to change it. Because I thought I could make it better. Okay, and so I would not be a victim of my success. Let's put it that way. Okay, or my failures. Hmm. And so, do you do you chase a perfection, or do you just chase a constant need to be better? I guess is my question. Wait, do you think I think, I think it's a little exists? bit of, of both. I, like, do you like is perfection something you like think can be attained, or do you just always see something that can be improved? You know, I, I think the worst and the best part of me is I see all the things that are wrong with everything. You know, I mean that 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 makes for a horrible human being, <laughs> but it also makes for a great human being. You know what I mean? I'm not saying I'm a great human being, but but I, I can tell you that it makes uh, it, it drives you mad. Uh, that trying to get that perfection, um, but it keeps you alive at the same time. And I've, I've told everybody that, you know, I'm not a person that likes to look back on what I've done. I always try to look forward okay. into what I'm going to do. 
And that includes the bad things or the good things. That When I'm ready to reflect on my life, that's when, when I'm ready to die. And I'm not ready to give up yet. Okay. That's interesting. Um, you know, just like... There's not, a lot, there's not a lot of chefs my age still banging it out. I'm almost 50. Okay? So... Uh, a, lot, a lot of times you get my, this age and you're ready to go sell, you know, frozen uh, lasagna for Cisco or something. And I'm not criticizing those people. They have families and they can make more money and have a better lifestyle. That's not what I wanted. I just wanted to be a decent chef. Okay. And you, you talked about the candlelight that took you 15 years. Why, why did it take, like, what was wrong over those years that you didn't enjoy about it? Well, the, I only... The other interesting thing about that is I have only tasted one in my entire life, and it belonged. I, and I tasted that one two times, uh, twenty years apart, and it belonged to Pierre Hermé, uh, and and I tasted his when he was at La Durée, and then I went back and I tasted it a few years ago, just to make sure if it was in my sense memory. And I, I to be quite honest with you, I, I feel I surpassed it, and there's no reason why I can't say that. I mean, just because. Pierre Hermé or somebody else is French and I'm an American doesn't mean I can't do it um, as well or better than they can. You know, that, that is an absolute bullshit belief that as an American, we can't be better or as a Japanese person can't make a better brownie than an American. If you set your mind to it and you start working at it, why, why, the, why the heck not can't you make a better brownie than an American? You know, so um, listen, I know there are things that I can make better than every, than some other people. And there's things that I leave it to them to make it, you know, better, you know, just as I don't go to the store, they're incapable, they're incapable hands to manage that store. They don't need me. I'm needed in the kitchen. Okay. So, um, you know, I, I just think I was looking for a certain texture and flavor explosion. It took me finding the right butter, the right dosage in the mold, the right beeswax. It was a bunch of things, the right rum, um, you know, the right, the right mix method, all that took uh, a lot of experimenting. It took a lot of failures and it took a lot of stopping and thinking about it and going back to it. So yeah, it was, it was an interesting process. Okay. And so do you, touching on like going to France and all that, do you think it's necessary for a pastry chef or someone who wants to be a pastry chef to travel to France um, to get that experience right away? I I absolutely think it is 100% um, essential for every pastry cook to go to France and eat up the culture because you will not understand what you're making unless you've had it made by the masters. This is like when you go to a, when you go to like a fake Asian restaurant, when I say fake, I mean like one of these trendy Asian restaurants that is owned by a large corporation and you know, they might be using Asian ingredients, but it's not Asian food. Okay. I'm not saying it's bad food. I'm just saying the person back there does not understand the soul of the food they're cooking. Mm-hmm. I had to go to France to eat cannellata Bordeaux and to eat macarons and to eat the chocolates. I, I went to, I, listen, I went back to France a couple of years ago and I remember eating Patrick Roger's chocolates and saying, how does he get all that acidity in there? I, I changed my, I went and I came back to the SLS and I said to my crew, I said, okay, Here's a couple things. One, where we make better this than they do. We make comparable to what they do, and this is where we need to improve. And I need to improve my chocolate skills. There's no question about it. I needed to improve my chocolate skills. I needed to bring new flavor to chocolate because that's what he was doing. 
and I needed to make drastic changes. So I hired better people. Okay. Cause as a team, you're only as good as your cooks. I don't care how good your leadership is. Okay. And, and, um, I needed to, to push everybody and to attempt to do new things and to work with flavors that were new to me and, and techniques that were new to me that I was inexperienced with. Okay. And so, um, If I found that I was doing something incorrect today, um, I would make those changes. I wouldn't be shocked. Um, You know, people all the time, you know, I meet them all the time and they go, well, I've always done it that way. And well, that doesn't mean shit. I mean, you you could drive home the same way every time and and get into a car accident, right? It happens. Mm -hmm. I mean, people do things wrong all the time for a long period of time. You know, we see that in our culture. We do things uh, towards certain groups of people that we wouldn't, in years past that we wouldn't dream of doing today and, and repeat that type of behavior. So you can change your behavior as a professional chef too. There's no question about it and change your, change your methods and improve. This is the one thing we can do over every animal on this world is we have the ability to improve ourselves either from within or our skill set as a professional. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. Uh, this last year was a big uh, change for me um, in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, getting out of culinary school and trying to figure out what to do. Um, the big thing was uh, for me, like losing weight. Uh, I was 278 pounds when I graduated. I'm at 193 right now. And it's just like, like, like you're saying, like you certain, like you do things wrong for a long time, but there is a capacity to like change that. And I think that was a lesson this last year that I learned is that you can always make the change. Yeah, and, that, and That's a very positive thing too, because I, I remember when I went to France, I was, overweight. I, I think I weighed in it. The heaviest I ever weighed in my life was uh, uh, 215 pounds. I was embarrassed. I, I got lazy. Um, I got complacent. And, uh, you know, now it's, you know, I'm down to 165 and keep myself in great shape. And I, I knew I had to get myself into better shape to be in it for the long haul. And we have a guy who works here, we call him 2.0, who lost half his body weight. He lost 160 pounds. Um, he's in great shape now. He's enjoying the change of his life. He, he sees the positivity looking forward. He's never going backwards. He's never going back to that. And I love having him here, uh, because he is a reminder to all of us that we can make incredible changes in our life and improvements. And, and, um, you know, he's a great inspiration for, for me. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely, it's inspiring to, um, to see when people make those uh, large changes. Uh, I mean, like, and talking about what you said, like staying fit so that you're able to do it when you're, you know, 40, 50, and when most people are kind of trying to get out of the industry was, when did you start to realize that you needed to start working out and being in shape in order to survive in the industry? Well, I, I think, you know, I think I really started working out hard in my mid thirties, you know what I mean? And I, and I, and I think I was probably a decent weight for my height. I'm six foot. I was 185. I think everybody would say that's pretty normal, but I felt a little too heavy. So I started kind of counting my calories and measuring my portions and reducing all that and flipping how I ate. And, um, um, you know, I started working out and I got down to, I think the lowest I ever got to was 158, which was too, too thin for me. Um, but I think 165 is my ideal weight for how I want to look, how I want to feel. And, um, you know, I don't think, you know, there's this industry, you know, they, people get into these bad habits, they get out late at night, there's nothing else to do. Hey, before you know it, if you're eating tacos from a truck and drinking beer at the end of the night and then going to bed, you're going to put on 35, 40 pounds and then maybe become addicted to alcohol 
addicted to nicotine and, and other things and that that you will not be long on this earth and you definitely will not be good in this business with with those habits okay yeah it's, yeah it's something i i i've seen uh you know I'm, I'm from buffalo new york and uh a kitchen culture there is, i mean it's great i love the restaurants there the food scene's amazing um but it's still like a little bit behind in terms of everywhere else i feel like and just seeing a lot of like friends who were in the industry who never left buffalo like how they are now and what they're doing to themselves it's like it's it's sad to see that these people are like just kind of wasting like years they could have by just living a destructive lifestyle because they think it's what they need to do to be a cook right and, and that that is highly prevalent in this business so um you know it, it is it is it's interesting and by the way i was just in buffalo i did uh taught a class there first time i was ever there yeah. and i had a great time and uh, actually i ate some great food when i was there I stayed at an insane asylum. <laughs> nice. Yeah, so I was, it was actually one of my questions. going to be the Hotel Henry. Yeah, Hotel Henry. Yeah. Um, Where did you end up eating? I uh, ate in the restaurant there um, once and then a couple of Italian places. Um, that was really good. You know, I really had a great time there. Yeah. Made some great friends. Yeah, I um, yeah, I saw that on your Instagram and I got really excited because I'm very proud of being from Buffalo, it's a it's like it's a great city to kind of grow up in and see everything. But uh, yeah, I used I worked there the, uh, last year with uh, my chef Ross. Uh, he worked at Oliver. He is a chef at Oliver's uh, restaurant there. Um, and like uh, he his he came back and like the food scene is getting really good because a lot of chefs are coming back. Like he staged at LBE. Uh, some other chefs were working at the French Laundry and they're coming back into the city. So it's been, there's been like this revitalization of the food scene over the last couple of years, which has been cool to watch. Yeah, I, I, I kind of picked up on that and uh, I was I was glad to go and I actually can't wait to go again. I, I got to tell you, it was like early May and it still felt very cool to me, but maybe that's just the California. Maybe, so. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's, we're, we're pretty warm by then um, for, for us. But uh, what, uh, what were, you were teaching classes there, you said? Yeah, Tom Rick imports the Selmy machines from uh, from Italy and um, they asked me to come out and teach class. It was great. A lot of Canadians had somebody come from Ecuador. It was good. Very good. Nice. Uh, that's something I want to kind of go into is like you, not only like through your classes, but also on social media, you are a teacher to so many people. It seems like you have a genuine interest to um, convey knowledge to the pastry cooks out there. What drives you to convey so much knowledge? Like your Instagram posts are like have such in-depth, um, just like, descriptions of things or you give so many great details like what makes you be so open about your work and giving information to people who are looking up to you well because somebody taught me you know what i mean or or maybe i discovered along the way but you know there's a lot of um information that is not published and um you know i think it's important to share that with people i don't i'm not a selfish person and i'm not going to live my life forever i'm not going to die with secrets and, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, I don't have an obligation to be the pastry chef for the world, but, um, I do enjoy, um, having conversations with people around the world. And look, I'm lucky. I, I was able to realize my dreams and there's somebody out there that's trying to realize their dreams. Uh, so why not give them a hand? I mean, that's not, that's not bad for society. You know, Hey, listen, not everybody, is is gonna love me and not everybody's gonna hate me there's that's how life goes but i i look more towards uh 
you know, the people who really want to learn and, and, and uh, sacrifice. And I know they're dying for information. And this is a new platform for me. It wasn't around when I began my career. It was magazines and, and um, occasionally TV shows like Great Chefs of the West or Great Chefs of Chicago or whatever I was watching when I was, you know, 18, 19 years old. Um, you know, so that information is like brand, uh, this platform is brand new to me. So, um, I realize it's impactful and, you know, I have hopes to do other things. So I think by doing, by knowing that I, you have to layer this, this, this for your career, you know, I I'm doing these things so I can do greater things in the long run. Mm -hmm. So by developing my audience, by becoming my own ambassador, I realized that the next step is doing something greater that my voice will be heard on. Okay. And, you know, that's going to be something outside of the realm of, of pastry and this career. It's something that I, I feel I need to do. It, it's, it's just kind of motivated me the last couple of years. And I have a, a lot more work to do before I can realize that dream. Um, but, um, you know, I, I hope to, uh, and what that actually is, 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 is really to tell my, my family story without, um, you know, embarrassing my family, but to, to tell my sister's story and how she survived, uh, the abusive household that I survived in and, um, and the one that my mom survived in and, um, you know, just realize, uh, there are a lot of human, we're all humans and we all walk around with something going on inside our head. And, uh, some of us know how to deal with it. Some of us don't. And, uh, you know, I had an eating disorder in my early 20s, and I said it out loud in my Q&A one time, and some girl messaged me from Canada, and she said, oh, my God, I thought I was the only person in this business that had an eating disorder. And I, I said, I guarantee you you're not, uh, because we're all humans. Um, so, you know, when we have something that's wrong with us, we walk around thinking everybody can see it, when in fact they can't. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so everybody might think you grow up in this ideal household, but in fact, it might be just as dysfunctional as the one I grew up in. And you don't know that when you meet people. So you say things to them and it could affect them certain ways. You just don't know, you know, just the regular day's behavior. You could say something that may bother that person down to the core. You just don't know because that person's not advertising that mm -hmm. on the outside, you know? So my, my, my goal would be to get a big enough audience, have them take me more seriously other than just being a pastry cooker so I could do the things that I really want to do. And it goes back like Francis Ford Coppola, the guy who directed the Godfather and, and, uh, you know, um, apocalypse. Now he only made those movies so he could get the money to make the movies that he really wanted to make. Nobody was interested in seeing those movies, but he felt like he wanted to make those movies. So he had to do one thing in order to do another. And I'm having to do this in, in the hopes that I can do another one on a bigger stage. Okay. Wow. I mean, you're, you've amassed a pretty good, I mean, 102,000 people on Instagram. Uh, I mean, countless more follow you. Um, I guess it's, just, it's admirable, you know, and as someone who is young in the industry or younger in the industry or starting out, like it was, it, it is really cool to see you being so open and so willing to just talk and to just, you know, to realize that there's value in leaving an impact on people. Um, do you, do you like advise pastry cooks coming up now to start building a brand or should they wait until they've done more? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Well, 
I can tell you, I, I, I asked my assistant to start a different Instagram and, and get all the personal stuff off it. So it's just kind of formatted so chocolate mm -hmm. in hopes that she can become her own brand, leave me and do her own thing someday and make a bunch of money. So, um, you know, she's, I asked her, I said, don't do anything foolish. Make sure it's positive for the company's sake. Um, but yeah, you know, I didn't realize that I was my own brand. I, my best friend is this Jamaican guy. He's, he's, we used to have, we had dinner every night for five years at the SLS hotel. His name's Carl. And he said to me, he, he said to me in his uh, Padua accent, he says, man, just, you don't have to work here your entire life, man. You're a creator. And when you're the creator, you're in charge. And, and I'm doing a terrible accent, but <laughs> he, he, he got me thinking it. And I joke with him. I say, yeah, you ruined my life, Carl. And, um, you know, I never really um, thought about that. And really social media made me my own brand. It, it still makes me my own brand, um, you know, and I'm not going to do just this. I mean, I'm going to do many other things uh, with the abilities and the attention that I, I have achieved now. Okay. So yes, people act like I just arrived like four years ago uh, because of social media. They call me an Instagram pastry star. Like I did nothing for the previous 24 years or whatever. Um, but um, it's okay. That's how it is. I don't care what people say about me one way or the other. I really don't. I, I, pr I appreciate the positive things. Not everybody's going to love me. I don't care. You know, um, I, I used to be all bothered by the social media attention when I first started getting it. I remember getting hives twice in one month, one time hmm. back around 2014, 2015, all this tremendous pressure on me. Now I, I just like, yeah, move on. You know what I mean? It, it's, it doesn't bother me as much to um, be known for who I am. It's okay. It's I, I'm glad I can inspire people uh, one way or the other. Yeah. It's weird. I can tell you it feels weird. <laughs> you know, if when people, if somebody said, oh, they posted it on the company Instagram, some restaurant in New York, they're based in New York and London. And they asked the pastry chef, they did a profile of the pastry chef. Um, his name is uh, James Sexton, I believe is his name. And, and um, they said, name the pastry chefs that inspire you. And they said, Cedric, he says Cedric Relay and Chris Harvey. And I was like, Jesus Christ, man, that's a lot to live up to. Uh, so it feels weird because, you know, I'm a fan of pastry chefs too. Yeah. You know, believe me, I am. So it's kind of like when the guy gets to the NFL and he's a star in his own right. And he looks over, you know, his name is Saquon Barkley and he's a huge star. And he looks over and he's standing next to Eli Manning. And he's got two Super Bowl rings, <laughs> two Super Bowl MVPs. And he's going to the Hall of Fame and he's going, holy shit, I'm standing next to uh, Eli Manning. And maybe the guy's going, Eli Manning's going, holy shit, look at the thighs on Saquon Barkley. You know? <laughs> so, you know, we get like that. We're humans, too. I'm fan. I'm a fan of uh, other people, too. You know, I don't care what, you know, they can make something very simple, like a perfect cookie or, or a perfect pie or something. I get excited over that stuff. Yeah. And I think when we first started talking, um, you know, I called you chef and you said, call me Chris. And uh, you have this humble way of being through talking to you for the last almost hour now. Um, I think, but I do think, you know, like you do, like you do deserve a level of respect. I mean, I, for me, I just admire anyone who, who's, who puts in that tremendous amount of work to build themselves and build the people around them and to build, like to even have time to go and, inspire more and teach more like that's inspiring to me and like that's a big reason why i wanted to have you on once i found out who you were it's just like 
you're a teacher and you're so, you just seem like someone who's genuinely interested in moving the industry in a positive direction. And that's what I want this podcast to be for. And I mean, yeah, it's, it's just inspiring to see everything you've done so far and what hopefully, I mean, I can't wait to see what you do in the future. Well, I'm looking forward to showing everybody what I plan on doing. And, and, um, you know, I, I, it's great to be able to realize that, you know, you know, the, the chef life has changed in the last 20 years. It used to be, if you became a chef, you know, you would cook in a kitchen until you couldn't do it anymore. And then, you know, that was it. I mean, now if you're a chef, you can create one item and make a fortune off it. You can, whatever that may be, like you start looking at grocery stores now and how with all the specialized food that they have, that stuff is chef created. So there, so you don't have to just use your chef skill to cook in a restaurant anymore. You can go create a, a new potato chip and make a fortune. Mm-hmm. I mean, you go look at like pop chips. I mean, somebody invented that technique. And then somebody said, well, these taste terrible. Let's make them, let's flavor them into something delicious. And look how good they are. And, you know, you could keep eating Fritos and Doritos, but then somebody comes out that brand called food, food is good or should food should taste good or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And it's a different type of tortilla chip and they're spectacular, you know? So life isn't always about standing put nowadays as a chef, you can, create like a jam or a spread or a commercial product, make a fortune and get, and maybe not get famous for it, but you can have a lot of success with it and provide for your family better than you ever could. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that has changed, you know? So um, you could become a spokesperson for a company like I've become. I, that wasn't my aspiration. I, I, that wasn't even a thought when I started my career. Now, you know, young people come in and they immediately say, what, I, also, I had an intern a few years ago and I said, what do you want to, what do you expect out of your career? She was in the kitchen for like 30 minutes and she said, I want to be on TV. I said, okay, well, this is Los Angeles. Okay. So I said, so does the entire barista, wait staff and bus boys and possibly some of the dishwashers. They all want to be on TV. Okay. I said, so why don't you come up with something more realistic? Let's learn how to make pastry cream. Okay. So I wasn't trying to crush her dreams, but you know, I can tell you, uh, I was uh, at the LA Times uh, a few weeks after that, and they were doing a feature article on me, and I was on the cover of the LA Times. It was crazy, right? The digital version of the LA Times. And it uh, must have been a slow news day. And, uh, you know, I was kind of telling that story, and I looked at the journalist, and I said, you know how many times I've been to, like, a major newspaper headquarter to talk about my life as a pastry chef? And she said, no. How many times? I said, this would be it. So... 99% of your career is just about doing your job. Okay. Just like being a fireman is or being a police officer, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or, or being a doctor. It's, it's very routine. You know, you, you might have that one shot as a doctor to save somebody's life on a cruise ship or an airplane. You just happen to be in the right place at the right time. Um, and sometimes that's the way it is with being a chef, but yeah, it's definitely changed. You know, you can be on TV, you know, I get a lot of offers to be on TV. I just filmed three episodes of my own TV show. You know, who knows if there'll be a fourth. Congratulations. Uh, we, we, we peddled a show. Or thank you. We peddled a show around um, a couple years ago um, and, um, you know, got turned down by a couple of networks, including, um, you know, Netflix. But, hell, it was still incredible to be able to do it, to be able to come from where I came from, to be able to talk about my own show at a company to a company like Netflix. My God, that has changed. So, very cool. Yeah. 
That's awesome to hear. Took a lot of work, by the way. It didn't happen overnight. It took a lot of work. <laughs> you know, I imagine. And I tell people, I say, hey, the reason the cameras are on me now is because uh, when nobody knew who I was, I was working super hard, not knowing that this would be my eventuality. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wow. So yeah, that's that's interesting. Like to think that like you know you never knew, knew that it was all going to turn out like this. Um, it's crazy. No, God, no, no. But my mom said to me one time, she goes, uh, um, she said, uh, well, you really fell into that job. And I said, no, mom, uh, I, I actually um, prepared for this job my entire life without knowing this job is coming to me. So now, um, now I, I look at my career as when one door closes, I, I, I know that there's something coming my way that somebody has created for me um, that I don't even know about yet. And it's happened to me. It's happened to me in recent time where Samsung came to me and said, would you like to, uh, we'd like to collaborate with you on your Instagram or monster energy has come to me. And uh, you know, so to be able to cross over and and to do those things, that's interesting to me. Mm -hmm. That shows you the power of social media. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely true. Um, yeah, I mean, that's why I, hopefully that's what I'm doing now works out, you know, it just not for attention, but like just to build something that I have, you know. Um, so we'll see how it all goes. Yeah, it, it, and it, you, you, you can, you know, you, you can. It just takes layering, just like building a croissant. You know, I remember one of my great cooks, her name was Lee, and her, her first croissant dough, my God, did that look like shit. And, and it was just terrible. And, and she was a career changer and all that. And I said, that's okay, Lee. It goes in the garbage. It's not life or death, right? And uh, and the next one got better, and the next one got better, and the next one got better. And I remember saying to her after about three months of practicing, I said, I said, Lee, isn't this kind of like how your life goes? The, the dough looks rough and lumpy, and your life is rough. But the more work you put into it, the prettier it looks. The prettier dough looks. And, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the sweeter the, the reward. Hmm. You know, and that's how life goes too. You know, it just it, it, it's just like that, and your career goes like that too. You just have to keep working at it, yeah, and changing it and making yourself better. Okay. Um, yeah. So I have a, a few like, quick questions before we end. Uh, I, you know, I figured an hour would be a good length. Uh, you know, I know you're busy and whatnot, but um, I guess just a few quick questions. Out first off, what are some like, uh, I guess childhood desserts or desserts that you liked? Uh, that maybe inspire you now, or I guess, is there any to go to desserts that you've liked over your life that like really just like remind you of what it means to be like making pastry? Well, you know, I, I grew up in a household with two chefs, you know, my, my brother Mark's a chef and brother Tom's a chef. Um, my, my dad was a disabled uh, firefighter and we didn't have a lot of money in the house and a lot of food. So, I think we got into the business so we could eat, which is just ironic because you don't spend a lot of time eating because you're so busy, you know, mm. but, um, we got in the business so we could eat. And, um, you know, my, my mom was a, was a very good cook and she actually, you know, we raised my nephew who was half Thai, half American. So, uh, she learned to be a great Thai and Vietnamese cook, to be quite honest with you. Um, but, uh, we grew up mostly eating Italian food and my mom's Italian and, um, you know, so we grew up kind of eating that sort of thing, but she loved cooking Asian food. And I thought for a while there, she was going to go to culinary school. 
but as you know, she had five kids. That wasn't going to happen. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't really remember. I, I remember thinking I always wanted to make candy bars as a kid. I didn't know how to do it, and now I know how to do it. So I have a great interest in going back and looking at the, the crap I used to eat as a kid <laughs> and how my taste buds have changed. I, I still love peanut M&Ms, though, and Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. And there's a candy out of um, uh, Western Pennsylvania called the Mallow Cup made by this company in Altoona, Pennsylvania, called the Boyer Candy Company. And uh, you can find them occasionally out here on the West Coast. Um, when I go back to New York, I pick up a couple here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my fans bought me a whole box of them one time and sent them to the hotel. He lives in England. I felt horrible that she did that, but it was nice of her. Um, but, uh, uh, but no, you know, I, I don't really remember, you know, my mom made a simple things. I love like, you know, like apple crisp and cherry crumble and things like that. I still um, would, if I was to eat dessert, which I don't, I would be more interested in simple things. I always loved ice cream. I don't eat dairy. Um, but, um, when I was a kid, I loved ice cream. I love soft serve. Um, you know, but I don't eat dessert. I, I, I see the health benefits of kind of avoiding it and I love kind of making it and making people happy. So that's where I, uh, and people say, well, how can you not eat it? Is this what you do for a living? I, I don't think a heart, a cardiologist needs to have a heart attack to know how to, how to fix someone. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, do you need to experience that? Yeah. No, yeah. you don't need to. You go, I, I'm trained. I have instincts, I have intelligence, you know, so. Okay. Uh, are there any books uh, or quotes or like any literature that you, uh, that has stuck with you over the time, maybe a, a cookbook or just a book in general that like helped you out uh, when you needed it? You know, I tell people to buy two books. Ramon Morado's book called Chocolat is really amazing. And um, God, that guy owes me so much money for many times this <laughs> Uh, he, he keeps messaging me. He goes, I'll buy you a beer next time you come to Barcelona. Well, I don't drink Ramon, so we'll go for tapas. <laughs> but um, uh, but it's neat, by the way, that I can be friends with him now because I was such a fan of his. So that's kind of cool. I dragged myself up into his stratosphere. Um, Fred Bow, Frederick Bow, uh, B-A-U, has a book I bought more than 20 years ago called La Corda de Savoie, The Heart of the Flavor. Um, I still have it. I reference it once in a while. Um uh, but I, I love quotes and, uh, I, 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 you know, when I'm, I went and I visited the old LA Rams coach, his name is George Allen. Um, he was the coach of the Rams back in the sixties. He's buried down in uh, Rancho's Palos Verdes. And I went and I visited his gravesite. and on his gravesite it says rain or shine. The future is now. Hmm. And that always meant a lot to me. It, it always meant you know what, no matter what the situation, three minutes ago is three minutes ago. We got to fucking move on. So that's what that means to me. And then I've often listened to a lot of William Friedkin, uh, the, the movie director I, I, I referenced earlier. Um, you know, he's always talking about um, Shakespeare. And uh, he, he, he referenced uh, um, this quote um, that said, there are more things in heaven and earth um, than in your, um, I, let me, I get the exact quote. I, I remember my sister was a huge Shakespeare um, fan, and I want to get the quote right, so I don't want to, I don't want to say it incorrectly. So let me look it up real quick. Yeah, okay. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. So he's saying that to a Hamlet, is saying that to Horatio, 
And he says, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. So I, I always thought that was uh, an interesting quote. And that really came full circle at me uh, when my sister passed away and I was able to eulogize her because she was such a huge fan of Shakespeare. When I started reading Shakespeare, I could see now why she was such a huge fan. And when I heard William Friedkin talk about it, it made sense to me. And what, what led me to that was he always, he, he, he said to me, he said, I don't do second takes. And I said, why not? And he said, I don't do, there's no second takes in life. Usually your first chance is your best chance. He says, so he says, I used to, but I don't do it anymore. And, and I, and I, and I, I would disagree with him. You know, when you, when you, you know, you lost all that weight, that's your second chance at life. My sister lost all that weight that she put on and it gave her a second chance at life. 2.0 lost all that weight. You can change yourself, mm -hmm. you know, you can change your physical being and your, your inside being as well. So um, I would disagree with him on that respectfully, but uh, I would say uh, I loved hearing him talk and uh, it's always meant a lot to me, um, you know, his, his thoughts and his processes. So, okay. Uh, I'm not a huge book reader, by the way. Okay. I graduated second to last in high school. I'm a terrible reader. <laughs> People are always asking me what to read. I, I haven't read a book and I can't tell you how long. And uh, some guy from Buffalo, New York just sent me a book he wrote. And I'm like, you're talking to somebody who graduated second to last. I can barely even read my own uh, email. So, <laughs> you know, I'm not a big reader. Okay. This sounds good. Um, and then uh, finally, before my final question, uh, is there uh, like any music you listen to or any podcast or any sort of audio that you listen to that gets you um, I guess in the, in the mood to, like when you're going to work out, or you're going to go have a long day in the kitchen. Is there anything that you listen to to kind of get you ready for that? Yeah, I always lead on, lean on other artists outside of my, um, profession. Why not? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a huge David Bowie fan. Um, I loved his lyrics. I loved his voice. I loved how he performed. Um, but yeah, I draw inspiration from all kinds of people. You may not see it all the time, but it, it just, I, I draw inspiration from them because I know how hard they've had to work to, to be that person, you know, to, to create that being of themselves, whether they're an incredible architect or a great singer songwriter like David Bowie. Um, they have to work incredibly hard to do that, you know? Um, and, you know, you see all these people out in LA trying to become actors and singers and performers to, to, to get, and I had, you know, I peddled a TV show around, like I said, for a couple of years. It's incredibly hard to do. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly hard to do. You, you know, you know, my, one of my favorite sayings was, you know, I, I'm a sports fan and I'm a New York Giants fan and, and their family owned team. And they sold half the team like 30 years ago to uh, the Tisch family. And Robert Tisch said to Wellington Mara, he said, um, he says, well, I just want to get in this. I just want to get 10 years of fun out of this. And, and he says, to get 10 years of fun out of professional sports ownership, you got to be in it for like 50 years because <laughs> it's not always fun, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of losing that happens. And there's a lot of struggle that happens in being a chef or a cook or a pastry cooker or a chocolatier mm -hmm. or a singer or a musician. There's a lot, of, a lot of just attempts and a lot of trying and a lot of rejection. I mean, Andy Warhol was rejected over and over again. They, they said, you know, New Yorker magazine, you can go on the internet and look this up and you will find the letters that he kept from the New Yorker magazine that said, Mr. Warhol, 
while we find your sketches to be amusing, we don't really feel they're for the New Yorker. <laughs> I mean, he got turned down. Wow. <laughs> you know, so it, it happens. It happens. You know, you, you know, Vermeer painted 37 paintings in the 17th century. He's considered the greatest artist of all time, and he died completely broke. You know, so, um, you know, you, you always have to look for others to say, okay, if they can do it. Hey, listen, I see a woman at my gym. She's like partially disabled, meaning she has to use a walker to walk. She takes the elevator to the fourth floor once in a while. But there's times where she has her husband take her walker and she struggles pulling herself up the stairs. Hmm. And I look at her and I say, I have no excuse not to perform at my best today because she could just take a fucking elevator. She's disabled after all. That's what it's there for. But she refuses to give in. Hmm. It's crazy. Yeah, that's it's inspiring to see that. Um, thank you for sharing that. Um, oh, I mean, that was just cool. <laughs> Great. So, I mean, this is, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on um, the podcast. Uh, I end every interview with the same question. Uh, I don't know if you've gotten to see the page a lot, but basically I call the followers or the listeners of the podcast, the line cook nation, um, a group of cooks, chefs, people in general who are just more interested in learning in the food industry. And I was just wondering, you know, now that you've been on the podcast, you're a part of that and what your thoughts are on that. Um, well, this is the first time I've ever done a podcast other than uh, KCRW. Um, so, uh, pretty amazing. You know, I like doing it. I'm glad I, I did it. And, uh, uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, awesome. That's cool to know that you're. We're kind of the first uh, podcast to have you on. Uh, you, I, I just so you know, I think you'd be great at a podcast. Um, I don't know if that's any of your interests, but I think you'd have a great uh, show in the making if you tried to do that. Uh, you know, uh, maybe someday. You know, um, I, I think of one platform for now, right now. Maybe someday, maybe you could teach me how to do it. Actually, how's that? <laughs> it's, it's super yeah. easy. <laughs> you just down, download. And I would like to talk to you more, actually, off- offline. Okay. Uh, if you ever want to call me, we can discuss uh, Buffalo, New York, your weight loss and things like that. Yeah. Because I, I, I could interview you and, and and find that to be interesting. Awesome. Great. Does that interest you at all? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it would be an honor. Thank you so much for listening to the episode. Um, thank you so much to Chris, first and foremost, for coming on. It means a ton. And thank you to the Line Cook Nation and all the listeners who are here and who are listening week in, week out. Um, I mean, we're growing. Uh, this podcast is growing pretty pretty big right now, and I'm very excited about that. And I'm so, so thrilled to see the growth and see the new listeners popping up in not only America, but all the other countries that now people are listening in. And uh, yeah, um, I have a lot of people asking me how they support me as I really don't have merchandise and I really don't do any of this for profit. Um, but if there, if you did want to support me, I do have a Patreon. So if you go to Line Cook Thoughts on Instagram, there's a link in my bio. And if you just want to support me through that, I set that up. Um, there's no tiers. I don't have any content that's paid for or anything like that. It's just simply a Patreon for if you feel like supporting me and you really want to, it's there for you. But other than that, just thank you all so much. Uh, share give us a rating on apple Podcasts, and just uh i I really just want this interview to be shared because i thought chris had a lot of great insights on uh the industry as a whole but like i said thank you chris so much for coming on Um, and thank you all for listening and we'll see you on the next line cook thoughts podcast